Campfire is a startup based out of Salt Lake City. I met them through LinkedIn. It's a really, really cool tech-enabled platform for leaders to learn from each other. So we're on a mission to close the connection gap and help leaders not only connect to themselves, but connect to the people around them, both on their teams and inside of their companies. So super proud of our, our mission and the way that we choose to do business with folks. We just have such genuine partnerships with the companies that we work with. We work with such great people. So it's just been an absolute treat to get to know so many different folks across the world through this startup experience. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Megan Galloway. Megan is the Head of Learning Experience at Campfire, a development platform that empowers managers to support their teams through conversations to improve employee engagement and strengthen their bottom line. She has spent over a decade building learning and development programs from the ground up for companies that have never had them before, including one recognized as the top global learning program. You can learn more about Megan at getcampfire.com. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Megan. Megan, welcome to the Corporate Couch Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I wish I did my podcast and I published the video. You look very nice. Oh, my God. Oh, thank yeah. you. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, very nice. Uh, yeah, I, uh, you and I met. Um, you were holding these uh, coffee chats during the pandemic. I think uh, one of the main reasons, that, well, connect people and I think help job seekers. So what what, what gave you the idea for that? Just curious. Yeah. Yeah. These coffee chats. So I work for a remote first startup and um, it's my first time being really in like a remote first environment. And I'd hit this point where I felt like I was pretty regularly talking to my cat and I knew that that was the sign that I was maybe a little lonely. <laughs> and so um, I decided to just, I was getting a lot of people that were requesting to like meet up for coffee virtually. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if we just like did this once a week or so and just got all these people together in one room. I wonder what that would feel like. So I think it was like a Tuesday afternoon. I posted and said, if anyone wants to join me in my Zoom room this Thursday, it'll be open. Would love to have people there and I'll just introduce people to each other and we'll just have a coffee and hang out. And then like 35 people showed up for the first one. I was like, oh my gosh, who are all these people? I didn't even know some of them. They just saw it on LinkedIn and showed up. And so Initially, I thought like, oh, I'm going to meet all of these cool people and I'm so excited to meet everyone. And then the more I was doing it, the more I was realizing, you know, I'm I'm kind of getting to know people, but really the benefit of these is like I give people a little bit of a prompt that maybe goes a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit deeper. And then they go into these breakout rooms and meet other people from across the world. And 
I realized, no, this is like a really cool thing that other people get out of this. Like they get this benefit of being able to be in these rooms with a prompt that makes them feel less awkward, but gets them to connect deeply with people quickly. And so, yeah, I started doing it like every week, every other week kind of as I had time. And yeah, now I've had over a thousand people in my coffee chat rooms and from six different continents. It's been wild. Yeah. I loved how you did the breakout rooms. That was, uh, I, I really like, and it's so funny because, um, uh, Steve Arntz, is it your CEO? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Steve, we were in the breakout room together and then he's messaging me offline because I, I don't know, I asked a question and I uh, revealed I was a New York Jets fan and, you know, uh, Zach Wilson <laughs> played at BYU <laughs> So he was, you know, chatting, what do you think about Zach Wilson? I go, I'll let you know after this season, which was last season, his second season. So I haven't gotten back to Steve, but uh, let's put it this way. The Jets signed Aaron Rodgers. So that was. Uh, oh, no. Uh, and then, yeah, another crazy thing. So I we talked well, before we came on air uh, that uh, uh, introduced to a friend of mine, Melissa McClung, who's a great person. But. I also met Anna Welchman from, uh, oh. and I never, and actually I've never met with her, but I introduced Melissa to her too because I knew, you know, she was in the MLD space and she felt like a, based on the breakout room, felt like a good person. So the, but Anna and I never talked outside that breakout room, so it was, you know, you're just connecting people, and that's that's nice. So mm, I love that. Yeah, Anna was on my team at um, the bank and just a phenomenal human being. So yeah, the more people can just like connect and you know, reduce the loneliness in our world, the better off we all are. Yeah. And I, I was in Capital One Home Loan. So I know Chad Cronk and Pat Schlemmer and Todd Bucati. I forget who else. Bob Mayer used to be over there for a while, probably when you were there. In oh, Ohio. that's so fun. Such yeah. good people. Yeah. And then Melissa Eggleston and I know each other from something else. But yeah. So yeah, good people over there. Yeah. yeah that's so yeah. fun. Yeah. So Megan, I'd like to start uh, with a kind of a, a a fun question. So we've been in the pandemic a little over three years now, and Zoom has become, uh, you know, uh, you know, like Kleenex, right? We've uh, got used to uh, relating and being on camera and re uh, meeting with people that way. What's the craziest attire you've seen someone uh, on a Zoom, a professional Zoom call or lack of attire, either one? So it wasn't me personally, but when I worked at the bank, one of the recruiters that was there during an interview, the gentleman showed up without a shirt on. Like he was on his couch, like lounging without a shirt on. The interviewee or the interviewer? The interviewee. Really? Yes. Wow. Yes, for real. She had to ask him to put a shirt on. Oh my God. That's great. I mean. Yes. Not for that person. I'm pretty sure wasn't hired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like that's a pretty standard. Like if you're yeah. interviewing, maybe put on a shirt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That'd probably be good. Um, that's funny. Um, so this is the corporate couch and we're not going to get into a, a therapy session. But what, as a kid growing up, what what you love to do? I loved my cat. I'm going to be honest with you. And I still love cats. But yeah, my little, I had a little black cat when I was a kid and um, she was my best friend. Her name was Star. She was with us for like 17 years. Oh. And so, yeah, I was that kid that was like a little crazy cat lady. And I just loved my cat so much back then. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. What, and uh, where did you grow up? I grew up here in Kansas City. So um, my dad is in Lenexa. My mom's in Overland Park. So um, yeah, I got to spend a lot of good time 
I did a lot of sports and things like that as well. Growing up was very active, lots of family here in the Kansas city area. So lots of good family time, um, you know, with, and actually all, almost all my siblings are back here in Kansas city now as well. And they're all having kids. So it's fun because now we've got all the cousins around here as well. It's very similar to how, how I grew up and I loved that. Yeah. Nice. So what what, what was your like dream as an adult? What did you want to be uh, growing up? Mm -hmm. President of the United States of America. Yes, I did. All right. I've had about 25 guests, give or take, uh, so far. Uh, and I, that you're the first one that had that dream. So there, I, I love it. I love it. Yeah. I was uh, a very ambitious little kid. Um, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So you've given up on that dream or you still could be out there, right? I mean, you never know. You never know what could happen. But I was very, very into politics. I was captain of the debate team. Oh, wow. Um, took the LSAT, was very seriously considering law school, and then decided to jump into the business world instead. So you never yeah. know where life will take you. Yeah. Uh, who's your favorite president? Mm. Ooh, we're getting political. Um, you know, regardless of policy, my favorite president is definitely Obama. And I will say it's a lot of the fact is because I am a big Michelle Obama fan. I think she is just so poised. Mm-hmm. So well-spoken. She is such a great example of a working mom that just does it all and doesn't do it all at the same time. And her first book when it came out was not too long after my first was born. And her talking about her experience and transition into, into motherhood as, I mean, she was she was an attorney at the same law firm as Barack Obama. That's how they met. Mm-hmm. And she was just, an, it is just an incredible working parent and hearing about her struggles that she transparently talks about in her book at a time when I really needed to read that, I just really related to. So yeah, I just have a lot of respect for them as human beings. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, like you said, whatever the politics and policy, I think, you know, what uh, president Obama did, I mean, he, he, he he was authentic. He tried to bring people together, um, you know, which, you know, not, it, we're, we seem to be in a much more divisive uh, political system today, but this is not a political talk show, so we'll... <laughs> we'll we can leave it there. <laughs> and actually, one of their daughters just graduated from college, I saw. So I, I cannot believe yeah. that's true. Yeah, yeah it seems yeah. like, um, yeah, they... That's one of the things that's interesting about being in that kind of a role is that you do like your entire family is in public light all of a sudden and you watch their experiences growing up and whatnot. So it's interesting with all of the president's kids, you kind of feel like you get to know them and you get to watch them grow up and what that looks like. It's it's fascinating. Right, right. Um, and uh, President Obama was a big hoopster, played hoop, I think, almost every day. So, um yeah, so uh, you go to University of Kansas and you pick a major Spanish and a minor in business. So what was the kind of thought process behind the uh, uh, picking Spanish as the your major, Megan? Yeah, so I actually got a scholarship to study abroad when I was 16 in Spain. So I spent the summer of my 16th year in um, a little town on the coast of Spain with a host family that did not speak any English. I think my host dad knew the words like cigarette and beer, and that was really it. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I, um, I picked up the language relatively quickly just because I had to when I was over there. And um, yeah, it was a life-changing experience for me. Like growing up in Johnson County here in, in Kansas, like if you're not from Kansas City, I don't think you would really 
anticipate the kind of culture that exists in Johnson County, but it is a bit of a bubble, right? Like there's not a lot of diversity. There's a lot of wealth. It's, um, I mean, I didn't really understand, even though my parents are not in a financial situation, like a lot of my friends were, where they, they didn't worry about money at all, or they got like a brand new car on their 16th birthday. That was not my family's situation. Um, I had a job from the time I was 15, but one of the things that's re- was just interesting was that going and traveling and living in a in a different country when you're 16 years old in those formative years, it kind of burst that bubble for me really early, and I got to see so much more uh, that exists outside of that bubble, and I loved it. I, it was hard not knowing a language and going and living there was it was a challenge, but the best kind where you like learned so much about yourself. So. When I went to college, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Like I did think that I wanted to go into politics at that point in time. So originally I started out as like a poli-sci major. And then I just decided I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And Spanish felt easy. So I took Spanish, I took Italian, I took French. I kind of like just did lots of different things at, at undergrad and actually graduated early, which if I could go back again, I would tell myself like, why would you leave that, that structure <laughs> early? <laughs> but I graduated in three years. Your and parents that. were happy. Yeah, they, yeah, they were, they were. So, um, yeah, so I, I thought, well, you know, Spanish is fun. I love learning the history. I love learning the language and then business can be useful likely. So decided to do that, but I actually used it in one of my first jobs. I worked for a a general contractor based out of Denver and, um, hired a lot of the, the trades folks for that organization. So I did a lot of this recruiting and a lot of it were primarily Spanish speakers. So I actually used it quite a bit in my first few years of my career. So you, you go from Lawrence, Kansas to uh, Denver, did you say? Yes. Yeah. My, my husband's from Iowa originally. I'm from Kansas. And um, we were we were relatively newly dating. We've been dating for a couple of years. And we both were ready to just get the heck out of Dodge for a while and try something different. So we both applied for jobs in Denver and Portland and Seattle. Huh. And wherever one of us got one first, we were just going to go. So that's why we ended up in Denver. I got a job out there. Nice. How'd you secure that job? Like, you know, basically most college graduates, they have a little bit of an idea how to get a job. But really, um, I think it's uh, it's it's kind of hit or miss. So how how'd you navigate and get that job? When I graduated, it was in 2011 and like the economy was not in a great place. There weren't a lot of people hiring. And so I was working as a bartender for about six months after I graduated, uh, just as I was job searching to keep money coming in. And then I, I found this job actually online in Colorado. And I'll tell you, like, as I interviewed with them, I thought, is this a real opportunity? Like, am I being scammed? Cause I, it's just it, at that time, especially like finding a job online, it just felt a little bit less natural. Um, but yeah, so I found it online and, uh, just applied kind of on a whim. And so it was a really cool opportunity and, and they didn't pay for my relocation and anything or anything. It was not a very high paying job, but it felt like a lot of money coming out of undergrad. So yeah, it was really fun. Nice. What was your favorite drink to make when you were a bartender? Oh, gosh. To make? Or drink. Or drink, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I really developed a love for gin when I was bartending because it's kind of like one of the drinks that, or one of the the spirits that's lesser used in a lot of instances, but just has such great flavor. In fact, we recently took a tour over at Jay Rieger here in Kansas City. Have Uh, you done that yet? No, I need to. Yeah. You need to, they are, it's so fun. And the person that they have making their gin um, is actually the person that did, 
Tangeray for many, many, many years, like 30 uh-huh. years. And they talked him out of coming out of retirement and moving to Kansas City from oh you know, overseas. Yeah. Come and basically said, like, you can do whatever you want. Take everything that you've learned and just make something amazing. So, yeah, Jay Rieger's gen is phenomenal. It's a oh, really wow. cool story. Wow. So before you started uh, drinking uh, Jay Rieger's gin, what was your favorite gin? Mm, Hendrix. Hendrix, yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm a, Bob, a Bombay Sapphire fan. I love, I love ah, nice, yeah. nice. I've got some of that in my liquor cabinet too. Perfect. Yeah. Well, maybe we should uh, take a break, make a, a martini, and come back here. It, that well, sounds good. Eleven twenty-four a.m. Maybe not. <laughs> That's great. So then, uh, how long were you in Denver? We were in Denver for about seven years. Oh, okay. And then my oldest was born, <sighs> and um, I had come back to Kansas City right before I went back from from maternity leave. So he was like three months old. And I remember my dad was dropping me off at the airport to go back to Denver. And it was me. It's just me and my son um, coming out for that trip. And my dad is not a very emotional person. Like he's very tenderhearted, but he doesn't, I can count on one hand the number of times I've seen him cry. And as he was dropping me off at the airport, he just got so choked up. And, you know, at the time before the new airport was there, you could kind of like see people through the glass after they dropped you off. Yes. Yeah. And I, I could see him and he was watching us and he was crying. And so I called him on my phone. And I said, dad, what's, what's going on over there? Are you okay? And he just said, you know, it's just hard. Cause I just, I always imagined that when you had kids, like we'd be living in the same place and I'd get to know, you know, you and your kids, you know, more every, every week, not when I come to visit. Right. I just cried my eyes out that entire plane ride back. And then I sat on it for like two weeks. And then my husband and I went on our first date after having, after having kids, um, just the two of us. And we sat down at dinner at Shanahan's restaurant in Denver, Colorado to celebrate our anniversary. And I said, Sean, I know, I know we said we'd never move back to Kansas city, but I really am ready to move back to Kansas city. And he said, yep. I know you are. I could tell as soon as you came back from that trip. So we put our house on a market on the market, like two weeks later, it sold that day. And we were back in Kansas city within six weeks. It was what, like a whirlwind. So you, and, and no job or anything like that for either of you, you just moved back and. <laughs> yeah. <thinking>. So <laughs> the company that I was working for at the time was just an amazing organization, uh, that general contractor that I was telling you about. And, um, you know, at the time, remote work wasn't as big of a thing, particularly for a construction company. But I sat down with my boss. He's still a great mentor of mine. His name is Brad Marsh. And I said, Brad, I've thought a lot about this. It's only like a few weeks after I've come back from maternity leave, you know, um, but I, we're, we're going to move back to Kansas City. And we cried together. And then he said, all right, let me help you find a job. So he made multiple introductions here in Kansas City for me through people that he knew, you know, in his network. And uh, they let me work remotely until I found the job that I wanted. So that's how I ended up at US Engineering was that um, they made that introduction for me. So I super appreciated that. Just really great people over there. Yeah, you never forget people that uh, go out of their way to help you. So that's that was very nice that Brad did that. And, and he remains a mentor to this day, it sounds like. So that's that's really nice. So, um, yeah, so uh, you were at U.S. Engineering, um, and um, I know National Bank of Kansas City. Um, and that, was there other one, uh, one other job uh, you were in the L&D space with uh, here outside those um, two? Just those ones until I started my own business, yeah. I'm uh, interested because I know you're a campfire, so t- tell us a little bit about campfire. Yeah, so 
Campfire is a startup based out of Salt Lake City. I met them through LinkedIn of all places. Um, one of my friends had gone through one of their their beta product experiences and said, Megan, you should check this out. This seems, you know, up your alley. And so I met the CEO through LinkedIn and uh, they were actually one of my first clients when I started my own business. And after about three months of working together, he talked me to coming on board full time. So it's been, I've been there for almost 18 months now in startup years. That's like 18 years. It just feels like it's been a long time, but it's, it's a really, really cool tech enabled platform for leaders to learn from each other. So we're on a mission to close the connection gap and help leaders not only connect to themselves, but connect to the people around them, both on their teams and inside of their companies. So super proud of our, our mission and the way that we choose to do, to do business with folks. We just have such genuine partnerships with the the companies that we work with. We work with such great people. So it's just been an absolute treat to get to know so many different folks across you know, the world through this, uh, the, the startup experience. I think when we chatted, uh, after I met you on your, uh, coffee chat, uh, networking, uh, virtual event, I did a consulting, um, engagement for almost a year with the Institute for Management Studies, IMS, <laughs> and they're in the LMD space. So tell me uh, about Campfire and what makes you different in terms of the learning and, uh, you know, the Campfire approach. Yeah. So most learning and development is very stand-up and deliver focused, right? Like we have this information that we are going to give you and we're the absolute inverse of that. So we're big believers in having one, focusing really into one specific behavioral competency and then using community-based learning to reinforce that. So we're not necessarily telling you all of the answers in every single session. It's almost like a blend between instruction and coaching in every single learning session that we do. It's really about creating space for people to learn from each other. So we use really specific prompts to get people thinking differently, but the magic really comes from learning from the other people that are in the room with you, whether they're from your same company or whether they're from a different company in a different industry, but talking about, you know, giving constructive feedback is hard. So how are you navigating that in a real way in your job? And uh, what does that look like and how can you approach it differently? And what are new things you can try as a leader to experiment with that can improve how you approach things and make it more authentic to you? So that's kind of the biggest differentiator, I would say. And we have our own, um, it's like a, it's kind of like a Zoom. We have our own video platform that creates a more inclusive space for people to learn. So not everything is just, you know, discussion-based. There's some things that are more focused on bringing quieter voices into the room, which is super cool as well. So what's a cohort group look like in terms of a number of people? Yeah, generally between 15 and 18. So we like to keep it small. And is it like a ongoing once a month type of thing or how, how, what is the process? Yeah, so we're big believers. Learning is not a one and done thing. Like if you're going to do behavioral change um, and really get successful with it, I would say um, we know neuroscience tells us that it takes 66 days to reinforce a new neural pathway. So after you have that new information introduced, you have to keep practicing it over over the course of over two months to really reinforce that. So if we can continue that conversation going on a monthly or twice a month basis, then you can start to consider like real tangible behavior change because you're constantly talking about it. It's constantly top of mind. And so you said you had founded your own company after you left uh, National Bank of Kansas City. So uh, what is your company focus on? Yeah. So Everleader is more consulting based. I do some speaking through there as well. 
um, really it's about helping businesses create their learning and development strategies and their leadership development strategies and frameworks. So I do a lot of that through Campfire now. I'm not doing as much work through Everleader right now, but it's still on the back burner and I'll go back to that at some point likely. So are you meeting with like the chief people officer of companies to, to help them develop a strategy in, in the L&D space? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Usually it's like a chief people officer, chief yeah. HR officer. Sometimes in larger organizations, it's more like a director of learning and development, but sure. um, kind of like the job that I was doing at the bank, I'm meeting with peers that would have been. And so I think that's what's so special about it is that I've been in their shoes before, like at three different organizations building these ground up sure. programs. And so I feel like I can approach it with a little bit more empathy than someone that's just been on the vendor side. Not that there's anything wrong with that either, but yeah, it kind of gives me a little bit of a an edge there that I kind of know what they're going through. Yeah, and I think uh, when you were at National Bank of Kansas City, uh, didn't you win a, uh, an award from uh, ATD to, in, in terms of uh, what you developed there? Tell us about that. Yeah, that was at Saunders actually, but yeah, we were recognized as a top learning organization globally. So number, we were number 19, number 20 was IBM. So yeah, it was, um, what a cool award. Like that was really fun because we had just started that program three years prior. So it was really fun to see, uh, the recognition so quickly and particularly to like construction companies, you don't stereotypically think like, oh, they've got great training programs there in their construction companies. Like they've got amazing cultures, but Saunders really breaks that mold. And um, I mean, kudos to Brad on that too, you know, who I was reporting to at the time. We found out we received that award and he said, you know, you've got to be the one to go present at this international conference and like accept the award and you should invite your husband to come along too. We're going to pay for that as well. Like he should be there to support you and celebrate you. It's just, it was a really special moment relatively early in my career that made me feel really empowered to you know, just trying new things and, and get ideas out there into the world. Yeah, that's great. And and what was the, I mean, what was the program that you developed at Saunders? Yeah, so we did a few different things. The one that was recognized was back then, most folks were still doing performance reviews on an annual basis. So we developed what we call the check-in process. So it was a quarterly process that made it more conversational. We were one of the first companies to really try that on back then. So it was really fun. So we had developed learning support uh, for managers to learn how to have those types of conversations with their teams and really create a culture of feedback. So it was fun to see the shift in, in the feedback culture as a result of those programs. Yeah, something on your LinkedIn profile, you're on a mission to make our workplace more authentic and and human place or something like that, which I always found, you know, it's weird you have to say that though, right? Like I always said, you know, like, you know, I think the pandemic, you know, put a lot of focus on people's mental health and, you know, and empathy, I think has been, you know, trending, uh, which it, 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 you know, should have been earlier, but I think the pandemic brought the focus onto that. But it's, it's funny you have to say, you know, like a workplace has to be more human, right? Because <laughs> like, we're all humans and it's, you know, it's just weird you have to say that. But what are, I mean, uh, whether you work there or not, what are some of the best companies either from a client side um, that you would uh, say are the best companies to work for or companies you know in Kansas City um, mm. and why, you know? 
Yeah. Exclusively to Kansas City or beyond? No, no, anywhere. They could be clients of yours or people you know. You know, it doesn't really matter. What what, what companies come to mind? I mean, top of the list is definitely Code Epoxy. They are just a phenomenal company. They're an outdoor gear organization. We work with them. Um, their chief impact officer, Grace Sunchik, she's just, she was over at Chobani for many years and then just recently started at Code Epoxy. They're just a treat to work with, honestly, like getting to know them. They're just, they, and they have a lot of remote positions as well. Um, but yeah, they're, they're just a fun organization to work with and so focused on giving back to the community. And um, yeah, it's really interesting. Actually, their, their CEO is leaving uh, the company for three years to go do a mission with his family in Brazil through his church to like, yeah, focus on giving back in that way for three years before coming back to the organization. So wow. it's a really interesting organization. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And where are they based? They're based out of Salt Lake City. Salt Lake. And but they have yeah locations all over and and have a lot of remote first employees. In terms of your your company history, what was the best company you worked for in terms of your uh preferences and why? I mean working at Campfire has been a tremendous learning experience. And that is a startup. And like I started here in sales and I've never done sales before. Um, I've had to learn so many different things about sales and customer success and accounting and finance, putting my MBA into like real life action, which I learned more from being at a startup for 18 months than I did in the entirety of my MBA. Not that that wasn't a great program, but you just learned so much more by actually doing it. Right. Um, but the thing that I think that is interesting here is that we push ourselves, we're a leadership development company. We push ourselves to practice what we preach. And so, you know, although this is really hard and stressful because we are a startup and being an executive as startup is high pressure, high demand. It's a hard job and we do practice what we preach. And I really appreciate that. Like, for example, I have never been in a job that has existed before me. Um, every single job I've ever had in my career, with the exception of maybe one, I have started that job for that organization. And so I have this like niche in building things, but I'm not very good at maintaining things. I know that about myself now. And so what I appreciate about working with Campfire is, and Steve, the CEO here is, you know, I'll kind of build up a function here and then we'll hire someone to come in and and continue that growth and that that building but then I move on to another position and I'm like in this continual building state. So I feel very fulfilled. Wow. I feel very like, yeah, creative. And so I appreciate that they're willing to work with me as a human being to maximize kind of like my zone of genius instead of just like putting me in a box and then making me be satisfied inside of that box. So there's parts of any job that you don't like, but finding people that are really willing to work with you to find where you can maximize your strengths is really unique, I think. I saw you mention your MBA. I I always like to hear people's opinion about uh, getting an MBA. I just finished my first semester teaching. Uh, I helped out the, your alma mater, the University of Kansas, in their undergraduate uh, business program. They had a teacher go on medical leave, so I I filled in this semester, and I I do a lot of guest speaking because uh, some of my friends are adjunct professors. But you know, the question I get at 100% of the time with students is should I get my MBA? So I would uh, love to pose that question to you, Megan. I think that if you go for an MBA, you have to take a break and actually be in the business world first for it to be the like the most impactful. Because really what you're getting at an MBA is like a deeper understanding of business and having kind of like some understanding of being inside the business world first, I think is very helpful. 
And then the other thing that I would say is like the main thing that I got from my MBA program was really the network that I built through my classes, the peers that I had, the professors that I had. And because I was a little bit older going through it, I went through it in my late twenties. And I would say that because I went through it at that time, I had a better understanding for how I could be successful inside of a program like that. So instead of approaching it, like in my undergrad, I just like did whatever the professors told me. And if I was lost, I would just work harder, which is an okay approach. But when I got my MBA, then I realized, okay, if I'm really struggling, what I should be doing is going and talking to this professor for more help and building a relationship with these professors because they are experts in their areas. And so these relationships with these professors is just as beneficial as the actual content they're teaching itself. And so going a little bit later on uh, after having several years of actual work experience, I think was most helpful. Yeah, that's interesting because and it, and obviously you're you're in a, in a graduate program in your late twenties, so you know you have obviously more maturity. But you know, I was this past semester I'm teaching nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two year olds. Um, you know, about f- almost forty of them, and I was just shocked about you know no one ever showed up for office hours. <laughs> uh, you know, and I I did maybe two virtual sessions uh, office hours. It, it, but, you know, a few of them would talk to me after class and things like that. But I was, you know, I, I opened it up. I, I, I did a free mini course on the Teachable platform on LinkedIn profiles to help people that really aren't active on LinkedIn at, in terms of and using it for a job uh, seeking. So th- th- my two groups of people I thought I could help the most is recent college graduates. Like, what do I what is a LinkedIn profile? How do I you know, what do I do? Uh, and then somebody that, you know, is 15 years at, you know, a Hallmark or a Cerner or 20 years or 25 and they're not active on LinkedIn. Their, their whole world is their company that they work at because they've been there so long. And, you know, I figured that could help them, you know, but, you know, out of 40 kids, uh, students, only two, two people took the course, <laughs> which is fine. I mean, you know, that's what, you know, so, um, you're writing a book. Tell us about the book. Yeah, I am writing a book. It's been really fun. I've aspired to do this for a very long time. And so I'm glad to finally be be into it. Like I'm actually writing now, which is really fun. And we're doing some primary research for the book too. So that's also been really interesting to like get to know what that process looks like. So the book is about the connection between a CEO's mental health and the health of their organization. So I'm talking to a whole bunch of different CEOs across the country about how they're doing and what types of things they do to take care of their own mental health and what kind of an impact that has on their organizations. And so it's been really a a phenomenal experience of taking a little bit of a different look at it through a new lens of, you know, I think that when people reach that level of being a CEO, we don't necessarily always see them as human. Like I remember when I was interviewing with US Engineering, sitting out front of a restaurant, getting ready to go in and have lunch with the CEO, like to interview and calling Brad, my old boss and saying, I am so nervous right now. Like, what am I supposed to say to a CEO? Because you see them as like this person that has it all figured out and like they're high and mighty and all those things. And he was just like, Megan, they're just a human, like any other human, like just go talk to him, just be you. And I was so nervous. And the more that I've gone through my career, the more I've really seen like, yeah, CEOs are just humans too. And they don't have all the answers by any means. 
And just like any other humans, they have needs. They, they're definitely more at risk uh, in that type of a role. They have more demands. They're getting more rewards as a result, but they are still humans and their mental health and how they approach their perspective on humanity and what work looks like inside of our lives trickles down to the leadership team that trickles down to mid-level managers that trickles down to frontline managers and beyond. And so the more that we can bring a spotlight to helping humans be humans, even at that top level, I think the more that we can really change the workplace to be that place that I, I thrive to, to that I aspire to like, you know, help create for my, my son and my daughter when they enter the workplace where people can show up as humans and we can all look at work just a little bit differently in our lives. That's good for business and good for us as humans. Fantastic idea for the, the book. What gave you the idea to do this? I mean, honestly, Steve, <laughs> because Steve is, I would say is probably one of the people that I have met that is most interested in their own personal development. Like Steve is genuinely curious about feedback, how he can improve. And also Steve has gone through a lot of hard times as a tech CEO in a startup land. And when he's having a hard time, the rest of us are having a hard time. <laughs> and so that's very real. Like that relationship does exist. And I've noticed it in other companies as well that I've worked for that when like the CEO is very deeply connected with their organization, the organization is connected too. But when the CEO is disengaged and like on an island, the rest of the company feels that too, right? And so uh, just really studying what that correlation looks like is fascinating to me. And if we can prove that there's tangible business results with a CEO being human and connected, then maybe more CEOs would take that approach. Like, are you looking for specific types of CEOs? Like, what's the criteria to to be involved in the book? Yeah, that's a great question. If you know anyone, I'm still conducting interviews. Um, I'm doing a range of people that are in smaller organizations to a lot larger organizations um, in all different types of industries. I've already interviewed people in a digital agency here, Justin Watkins here at Native Digital here in Kansas City. He was such a great guy, like such a phenomenal interview, an example of someone that does this extremely well. People in construction, people in manufacturing, automotive, um, tech, uh, insurance. I've kind of been all over the board so far, but purposefully because I want to see, I want to see what it looks like across lots of different industries, not just the ones that I've had a firsthand view into. Yeah, it was interesting because the first time I, and it could have been prior CEOs had uh, an executive coach, but I the first time I noticed it was at uh, Beringer Ingelheim uh, in the animal health division up in St. Joe, um, George Heigerken, who was our CEO at the time, he had a coach and I kept thinking, why does this, you know, he's the CEO, like, why does he need a coach? But, you know, it makes sense. Like, you know, the best golf, every professional golfer has a coach, you know, from the, you know, like they need it, like, cause they're on an island. And a lot of times because they're the CEO, people will not give them honest feedback. And right. It, you know, it's a lot of yeses. Yes, yes, yes. You know, because you're afraid and it, it depends on the leadership style of that CEO. Are they open? to receive feedback and can you tell them no and a lot of you know i've worked for ceos you cannot disagree with them in a meeting and that's not good you know like you know because they don't know everything and you know it you know it's all about a lot of times you know it's the ego thing and that's unfortunate 
So it's like Ryan yeah. Holiday's book, Ego's the Enemy, and it's it's so true. Um, it really is. So, yeah, no, that book should be fantastic. I, I will give it some thought in terms of, uh, um, um, you know, who who would be good in terms of interviewing. Are, in terms of your interviewing so far, I mean, are they pretty – are the CEOs pretty candid? I mean, because you could delve into – you know, it's going to be put in a book and, you, you know, you're interviewing the CEO and say, well, yeah, the pandemic threw me for a loop because maybe I lost my parents and, during, you know, because of COVID and my, you know, my wife had COVID or my spouse, or, you know, whatever it is, right? They could have been suffering and they're going to admit that. But, but it's, you know, have you seen that in terms of your interviewing so far? Shockingly, yes. I wasn't expecting, I was a little nervous about it because I wasn't sure so I've, I give people the choice. You can be anonymous or you can be, you know, cited. And most people have chosen to be cited. It's fascinating. I've had people open up to me about struggling with alcoholism, about people that had somebody embezzle something within their company that threw them for a loop that they were having to like recover from financially. It's been fascinating to see, like my first question that I'm asking on all of these interviews is, how are you? But how are you really as a human being doing and um, I think that's one of my one of my superpowers is letting people feel safe enough to open up more and to go just that level deeper. And so, um, yeah, I genuinely am curious about the answer, and I'm, you know, there to listen to them. And part of it, I honestly think, is that CEOs don't have that a lot of the time. They don't have someone asking, "How are you doing as a human?" and listening without judgment. And so um, I think since I'm giving them that space, they're being honest, which has been really cool. Have you noticed any differences between female CEOs versus males in terms of what they're revealing and what are the differences? Yeah, it's been fascinating and honestly a little sad because male CEOs are the ones that are actually opening up more. And um, the female CEOs that I've talked to have been very guarded. And I think that that is a result of the fact that like when you are a female and you're in that type of a position, society has trained us that you don't bring emotions into work. And if you're a female and you do get emotional, you are labeled as someone that's like this emotional female. And when a male does it, it's like celebrated. And it's like, why? I mean, yes, I'm glad that men can have emotions too. They do have emotions. That's real. Like we should have more of that. And because they're breaking the mold, it's celebrated. But then when a woman does it, it's like, oh, she's emotional. Maybe we can't rely on her. Is she unstable? And it's like, well, no, both things can be true. Like they can be emotional and stable. And so, um, so far I have noticed that trend, which is, you know, that's part of, like I said, the reason why I want to do all of this is to create a space where people can show up as humans and it's accepted no matter your gender, no matter whether you're a minority or not, it's like, you should be able to show up as a whole human without that stigma attached to things. Yeah, because if you're a female CEO, I think you're right. They're, they almost can't act authentic because they have to portray a different persona, which is sad, but that's probably how they got there. But, you know, mm -hmm. hopefully things will change. But when is the book coming out? Hopefully later this summer. Yeah, we're moving yeah. pretty fast. Oh, right. So, yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm, yeah, true startup land, pedal to the metal, right? So. 
Um, yeah, really ambitious to get it out sooner than later because it's such a hot topic right now, right? Like the Surgeon General just came out a few weeks ago with this workplace report on uh, the loneliness epidemic and how much the workplace is contributing to this lack of connection and and um, you know the disparaging mental health in our in our country right now. And so, yeah, I'm a huge fan of Vivek Murthy's work. So I'm excited uh, to like add to that conversation. I mean, I'm obsessed with corporate culture. I mean, it's, you know, I love Peter Drucker's quote on, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, and I just think it's so important, especially in today's world, post-pandemic. But what, you know, what is the balance? Because I think you, you know, we're social beings and it's great that you and I can have this called via Zoom and it's fine, but people need to see each other. So what what is that like in terms of, you know, remote or hybrid? I mean, I think, in my opinion, you know, being in an office 100% of the time is a thing of the past. I don't see that. But a lot of companies are, you know, forcing people to come back, um, which is crazy. They say, you know, back to work. Well, Everybody worked during the pandemic. They just weren't in the office working. So, right. uh, so what what is your take on that, Megan? I mean, I do think that there are components of like the passing uh, conversations that are lost when you work remotely. So, I think one of two things has to happen. I think that either we have to figure out a way to make some of those things happen more naturally inside of a remote world. But even then, like people are saving a lot of money when they're shutting down office buildings and they're not paying these large rents. So use that money to bring everybody onto an onsite once a quarter so that you do get that deep connection time. But I think that like the the answer, like I don't think anyone has this figured out. What I do think has to be an answer is identifying what are the different types of connection that your workplace needs. And then how do you create bases for those types of connections? for the purposes of building the right kind of culture that we know then benefits the entire organization and the bottom line as well. Yeah, and I can't remember what IMS thought leader uh, when I was at the Institute of Management Studies. So they do a, a three-hour virtual uh, where there's a lot of breakouts and um, and it was about uh, remote work. Uh, but I, the person, and I want to say it was Graham Coddington possibly, but what he said was you should have just a Zoom call with your team just to chat. Like, no, it's not an agenda. It's like, how's everybody doing? Like, there's no work talk. Like, what what are your plans for the weekend or what, you know, you know, it, it's just that chat. It could be 15 minutes depending on your team and the number of a team. But just, you know, because a lot of times, you know, there's Zoom fatigue, right? And a lot of times you're in a meeting and the beginning of the meeting's like all chit chat. And, you know, I was one of those inpatient people <laughs> like, okay, well, we're here to meet. Like, I'm, you know, let's just talk about, you know, have another meeting to just chat about things. So that, it's an interesting concept. So I don't know uh, if it would work or not, but I I thought it was, you know, just just have a meeting to catch up with people, you know, no, no work agenda type thing. So, um, so I have to ask you, uh, you want to be on the great, British Bake Off, I saw uh, in both your bio and your LinkedIn. So, what what is your favorite thing to bake, or can you not reveal that because oh. you want to get on the show? <laughs> so, I'd have to be on the Great American Bake Off. Clearly, um, I don't have the accent nor the nationality for Great British Bake, but I am obsessed with the show. <laughs> I love baking. I particularly love baking like yeasted pastries. So. 
they're very time consuming. So I only do it a couple times a year now, but I love making croissants from scratch. It's super time intensive, like literally takes a full day, but, um, yeah, it's just really gratifying to have something that like you would not typically get at a store that would taste as good, but then when you make it fresh, it's like, Oh, this is how this is supposed to taste. This is so good. So, yeah. So I just made croissants actually a few weeks ago and uh, uh-huh. did some, some chocolate croissants. Oh, nice. Fantastic. And uh, not that I'm a, a chef by any stretch, but my, my wife is a great uh, cook and I dabble in a few things, but I know baking, you have to be very precise. There's no, you know, it's not like, Oh, a little of this, a little of that. It's very, <laughs> yeah, you have to, like, I have a scale that I weigh everything on so that it's like absolutely precise, exact measurements of things. And, um, yeah. So, and I make, I make banana bread almost every weekend for my kids. That's like nice. their favorite thing. And they like to do it with me. So it's a good, it's a good together time activity. And for, I'll never forget uh, that either. They'll, yeah, they'll talk about that. And, yeah. In fact, that's one of the things, you know, for mother's day kids at school, right? Like the things about your mom, you know? And so they answer these little questions yeah. and my son is so tender hearted. He's five, he's almost six. And he, he wrote like the, my favorite thing to do with my mom is to bake banana bread together. And it just made my heart so happy. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Well, Megan, there's two groups I like to impart great leadership advice to uh, and to try to help them. One is the recent college graduates. So it's May 19th here, 2023. So all these students have just graduated college embarking on their first professional job. What advice do you have for them in terms of getting their first job? I mean, honestly, the thing that I wish that I would have known back then was that it really is about who you know, which I wish that it wasn't always true like that, because I do think that that prevents the kind of diversity and like access that we want to have in our workplaces. But it is true that people hire because they trust someone and they have gotten to know them or they think that they know them. And so like the more that you can network with people, like having internships, and then while you're at your internship, getting to know lots of different people while you're there and being really hungry to learn different things and, you know, just being really approachable in those ways. I wish that I would have known more of that while I was an undergrad and would have more actively pursued that type of networking, even during my undergrad degree. So that when I was coming out, I already had that foundation built, uh, which, you know, takes years to build that kind of trust and, and those relationships and, it's really not about you. Like it's about how you give back to other people. And then if you do that enough, like if you put good things out into the world, it comes back around to you. Yeah. And I always tell the students ready to graduate or if they have graduated, like people are empathetic to you too. Be, uh, and I think the pandemic has helped that because now you can meet with people over Zoom. So it's easier, but everybody remembers coming out of college and how stressful and it is to get your first job and all that. So I'd say use that to your advantage and always ask the person you're meeting with, how can I help you? And you may think, oh, well, this person's the uh, director of HR at, you know, Cerner, or, or I guess Oracle now, you know, and I, I say, it doesn't matter. Maybe you worked at a golf course in the summer and they're working for a, a, a not-for-profit and they're doing a charity golf event and maybe you can help them because you can offer the course you work at. So, the, you know, you never know how you can help somebody. So always ask. 
The second group I'd like to help is get out of college and you're usually an individual contributor, but now you get promoted and you have people that work for you. So what's uh, kind of the you know uh, leadership advice uh, you would give them as they embark on their uh, leadership managerial journey? Yeah. The biggest mistake that I made when I made that transition years ago was I thought that I had to have answers for people. Like you think that when you get into this leadership role, when you're a manager of people, that your job is to know the answers. I don't know why I thought that, but I did. I thought that, and I think it's common that people feel that way. And the reality is the more that I have adapted my leadership style over the course of my my leadership journey to be like, you know, when I don't know an answer, I'm going to admit that I don't know. And even if I think I know an answer, it's probably not the only answer and it might not be the right answer. So like the more deeply curious that I can get as a human being, the better leader I am for the people that are around me, the more they enjoy working with me. And so I'm not perfect at it. Obviously no one is, but um, yeah, like I would hope that the people that have reported to me over the past have said, yeah, Megan is a deeply curious person. Um, I hope that they say that. Well, Megan, you've been a joy to talk to. Very excited about your book coming out. Uh, Thank you again for uh, appearing on the corporate couch. Thank you so much for having me. This is so great. I, I would say like the, I love your podcast format and that you really do dive deeper into so many different parts of a person's journey. And um, yeah, every person's journey is so unique. There's always something to learn from, from somebody else's story. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again, Megan. Have a great weekend. Thanks. You too. I really enjoyed talking to Megan. I just think her book about CEOs and how their mental health reflects the mental health of the organization and just asking about their mental health and how they did during the pandemic, because they seem, you know, CEOs are kind of out on an island sometimes. So I'm I'm very interested and curious to see when that book comes out and uh, I'm anxious to read it. But what I really liked also, too, in this pandemic time, you know, we've been three plus years into it, um, and we when we all went to Zoom, you know, we talked about you know what what kind of thing is right for companies. Is it 100% remote? Is it hybrid? Is it you know, 100% in the office? And I really liked her answer to that when she said, you know, you really have to determine what type of connection your employees need. So. I'd love your take on that, Joe. Yeah, it, you know, it's not only what what kind of connection your employees need. It it seems to me that it's on it's on more than one level. Like there's a corporate level first of all. What is appropriate for your organization, your corporation, as far as a a mix of in person, remote, or or hybrid? But even within an organization. There can be a mix within individuals. Like, for instance, I desire very, very little social contact. I'm an extremely introverted person. And so social contact actually gets in the way with me sometimes. Other people thrive on that social contact. They need that stuff. And so uh, I think it's important, and I, apparently Megan is helping people discover that, it's important to find that sweet spot that level of appropriateness within an organization or for your organization and also for every individual within your organization. 
Yeah, Joe, if it was up to you, you probably would have started working at home by yourself in like 1995, mm -hmm. maybe. Yeah, but I wouldn't have known that then. It, it, it Frankly, it didn't occur to me until it didn't occur to me how much I enjoyed it until then. And that's why it's important to have somebody like Megan to come in and find that sweet spot, find that level of, uh, of balance. Yeah, you know, it uh, would have been interesting. Frank Manura uh, brought this up during his interview, how um, how we would have really handled, you know, a pandemic, you know, from a work perspective, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, without the technology. And we probably had audio conferencing back then, but that really was about it. We I had mean. we had audio conferencing, but boy, it wasn't it wasn't what it is now. We had and and it was always dependent on third parties. So you always had to dial into, remember that you had to dial into an 800 number and then they set you up with the audio conference and it costs right. like, cost like 30 cents a minute or something like that. Oh yeah. Uh, and there was no video or anything. It uh, yeah. We would have handled it much, much differently than, than how it was handled this time. Well, based on the episode, Joe, any leadership wisdom you'd like to give the audience? Yeah. I've got a uh, quote from that great philosopher named Calvin, who was talking to a stuffed tiger named Hobbes. One time he said, most people just muddle through lives. They're passive and unmotivated. They lack ambition and drive, but not me. I'm going to have an epic life. I'm going to wrestle the issues of the age and change the course of history. I'm going to sit here and wait so opportunity will know right where to find me when it's time to change the world. And it'll happen any minute now. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.